0: I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Ashley Willens is an assistant professor at the Harvard Business School in Negotiations, Organizations, and Markets. Ashley is passionate about science communication and public engagement, and she regularly writes about her research for popular press outlets, including Harvard Business Review, Scientific American, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Ashley is the author of a new book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time, and live a happier life. And I think the best fact about Ashley is that before she started her career in research, she worked professionally as an actor. So we all know that teaching and research requires acting, so I hope we'll hear all about that. Hello, Ashley.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I am doing great. How's it going today?
1: Everything's going well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: We're thrilled to have you on the show, and I want to jump to the topic in your book in a minute, as it pertains to time, and my belief of the impact that time can have on being brave at work. But first, if you could tell us just maybe a little bit more about yourself and and really how you have come to do what you do today.
1: Of course, my name's Ashley Willans. As was already mentioned, I'm an assistant professor at the Harvard Business School and a social psychologist by training. As was already alluded to, I stumbled into psychology Via a circuitous route of being an actor first. But I was always the nerd in the library and theater school. I was always very interested in the historical context in which people lived. I was not the one on the stage practicing lines or practicing where to stand. So my theater instructors were not that impressed with me, I have to say. And after I left theater school, I decided, I think I'm a a nerd. Like I want to go back to college. And I stumbled into psychology and really never looked back. Acting is about understanding your character's motivation. And psychology is about understanding human motivation and leveraging those motivations to help people make better decisions around two of the most valuable resources. This is the angle of my research, time and money, and looking at how we can optimize our decisions with our discretionary income and our discretionary time to live a more satisfying, happier, and healthier life. I got into this research topic because I was studying in a lab that does a lot of research looking at how you can spend money to promote happiness, showing over and over again that spending $5 or $20 to help others promotes greater happiness than spending $5 or $20 on oneself. Yet, despite these benefits, we don't They're not obvious to us in advance. We don't always intuit these benefits. So people often say, well, I would rather have $20 for myself to get happier. And I became really fascinated with this question of why our beliefs about what's going to make us happy lead us astray and whether the insights we were seeing with money might also apply to time. So that's how I got interested in this topic. And then in terms of the book, um, which is coming out and I'm very excited about, That was really a passion project for me. I was doing all of this research in my PhD around time-money trade-offs, the fact that we prioritize money and work and productivity over leisure, social relationships, happiness, and that we all do it regardless of how much money we have, yet focusing more on time as opposed to money leads to greater happiness, which we'll get into in a second. And yet I was also finding myself making the wrong decision over and over again, prioritizing work over social relationships, even though my data was suggesting I should do the exact opposite. So I wrote this book really to bridge the gap between science and practice. If I was having a hard time and I wrote an entire dissertation on the relationship between valuing time over money and happiness, then it must be hard for all of us. And so the book really lays out simple strategies we can all take to focus a little bit more on time affluence as opposed to money or productivity.
0: Well, that might be one of the reasons why I love the book because this concept of um, science and uh, practice is very similar to the work that coaches do helping people convert ideas to action. Ideas oftentimes can be very easy to create or easy to identify. You can even read a book that gives you ideas and yet converting them to action And taking action oftentimes is where the challenge lies. So, you know, perhaps that's something that we can talk about as well. I just want to go back to one of the comments you made about how, you know, the influence or the relationship that we have with time and money is not obvious. Uh, You know, time is something that, of course, we all have and that we all utilize in different ways. But tell us a little bit more about the obviousness of it, if I'm asking the question correctly.
1: Well, I think it's that we, we, if you ask someone is going to, is someone, if you ask someone is helping others going to make you happy, they would say yes. But then when they're thinking about in my own life, am I going to spend my own money on others? And will that make me happy? That's a more complicated question. People say, well, maybe I should be spending that on my own bills, maybe I should be spending that on my own family. And so people are not always correctly intuiting the fact that spending that $5 or $20 on others is going to promote greater happiness. And similar logic can be applied to time. It might seem unsurprising listening that people who prioritize time over money are happier. However, in the abstract, much to what you're saying, this idea seems correct. Of course, that should be the case. Work is stressful. Time enables us to have meaningful conversations and relationships, which are really important for happiness. Yet that general belief applied to my own life becomes more complicated for people. When you start to get concrete, it becomes much more difficult for people to see that the decision to forego 20 minutes, to work 20 minutes longer at the office, that that is a trade-off that is impacting your ability to spend 20 more minutes with your spouse. So when taking these abstract concepts and distilling them and making a decision in one's own life, we don't always get it right. We kind of know about these ideas at the high level. We know helping others is important. We know about the value of time is very high. We know social relationships matter. Yet when we're faced in the moment with a decision about time versus money, do I live closer, further to work? Do I take a direct flight or an indirect flight? Do I spend hours searching for the best deal or do I spend that time with my family instead? That becomes a harder decision for people. And that's where we're not always making correct decisions to optimize our happiness and minimize our stress.
0: So does your research show that the way that we manage money and the way that we manage time should be done differently?
1: So... I think my research points to the idea that we should somewhat change our decisions around the margins. It's not always that everyone is incorrectly making decisions. It's more that we often don't recognize the decisions that we're making involve trade-offs between time or money. We don't often think that every time I get paid, I have an option not only to spend some and save some, but also give some to charity. And my research really ask people to be more deliberate with the way that they spend these two very important resources, given that a lot of our behavior gets us into traps because it's habitualized. So for a very concrete example, we check our phones much too often than we should, and that takes away time that we could be spending doing something else that might be more likely to translate into greater happiness. Yet we often do it because it's a habitual behavior that we've learned to do, and we're not being always as intentional about that decision as we could be. So my research would suggest on average that it's not necessarily we're making always incorrect decisions, but rather we don't always make as mindful of decisions related to time and money as we could, and that we all need to be a little bit more intentional about the ways in which we spend small amounts of time and money each and every day, since those small decisions around the margins become how we live our lives and how we spend our financial resources.
0: Well, not that you're looking for another resource for research, but I would tell you I would agree with that assessment and that As I look at myself, I certainly think a little bit more about money and how that is spent and where it is coming from and how it is leaving than I do about time. And a lot of the things that I do that take up time, to your point, are habitual, including my phone. I am somewhat, quote unquote, addicted to uh, looking at my phone on a constant basis to the frustration of my spouse and and others. And uh, it's hard not to do.
1: And I talk about this, and I think this is what you've identified as a really important point that research bears out. So in general, we all could be a little bit more mindful about how we spend our financial resources and our temporal resources, our time. However, we're worse about these decisions related to time as opposed to money. So money is very concrete. has a fixed value. We are much more sensitive to tracking it, even at small dollar amounts that might be a a relatively uh, low amount, a drop in the bucket, if you will. But when it comes to time, we only start to become sensitive to losses of time when we're talking in the span of months and years. That's when we start to really feel those time costs viscerally. And that is really important because that realization explains a lot of what I call time traps in the book, which is this idea that there's a lot of decisions we make on an everyday basis that seem small at the time that lead us to start feeling time poor across various areas in our life. Because at the time we're making a decision, it doesn't feel like such a big deal. The time cost feels relatively minor. So I do talk about the importance of accruing the time costs over not just a day, but a month, a week, a year, so that we can really help our brains understand the the time implications of some of the decisions that we're making on an everyday basis.
0: You've used a few times the term mindful as part of a strategy or practice to navigate time and navigate money a little bit more effectively. Could you possibly explain for our listeners what you mean by, you know, being more mindful?
1: Yeah. So in the book I talk about, not only I talk about these different time traps, which make people feel time poor, which is a feeling of having too many things to do and not enough time to do it, irregardless of how much time you actually have. The psychological experience of being time poor is this feeling that your life is somewhat out of your control, that you can't fit everything you need to do at work and want to do in your personal life into your days. And so with that conceptualization, that idea of time poverty in mind, one of the strategies I talk about for moving toward more time affluence is this idea of finding time. Time researchers already do this in the context of their studies by asking participants to create time diaries where they map out the activities that they're complete in the last 24 hours, usually during a typical work day, which tends to be more of your average day with average levels of stress for most people. So what activities did you do in the morning? What activities did you do in the afternoon? And what activities did you do in the evening? And how did you feel during each of these activities? How positive did you feel? How much purpose did you feel? And just this act of writing out what we did in a typical day, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, a regular work day, and looking at the end of the day and seeing whether your activities that you engaged in brought you happiness, pleasure, meaning, and whether they were the same or different than what your ideal day would have been is one strategy I talk about to, as a first step to help us all identify what traps we find ourselves in and try to move the needle more from time poverty to time affluence. So mindfulness, this intentionality and awareness of how we're spending our time, where our time goes missing in a day, is one of the key first steps to understanding how to become more time affluent in your daily life.
0: Is an accountability partner somebody who would be important to help you do those kind of analytics?
1: I love the idea of an accountability partner, and I advocate for this, especially around technology use. I have one of my amazing graduate students, Ariella Cristal, has a whole PhD thesis devoted to the idea that we're not very good at adhering to our goals when left to our own devices, but we want to rely on willpower, but willpower leads us astray. So any situational strategies, whether it's another person, whether it's an app that automatically bans you from certain sites while you're trying to get work done or you're trying to have dinner with your family, any situational strategies that can help you achieve your goals around time use, or quite frankly, to achieve any of your goals in life, are likely to pay off dividends for you actually adhering to a decision and experiencing greater happiness and less stress as a result. So definitely co-opt your partner, your family, your friends, the latest app you found on the internet to help you achieve your time use goals, particularly related to technology, since I think that's where a lot of our time goes missing these days, at least for me.
0: Oh, I think for all of us. You mentioned earlier, you know, people who feel they have too much to do and not enough time to do it. I think ninety-nine percent of the people I know in life believe that—that they have too much to do and not enough time to do it.
1: In in large nationally representative samples, both of Americans and all over the world, in one data set I have of two and a half million Americans, I'll keep it specific to this. Eighty percent reported feeling time poor, and. The effect of time poverty, this self-reported affliction that our participants were experiencing had a stronger negative effect on happiness than being unemployed. So this is pervasive and common and unpleasant for everyone involved.
0: (laughs) Well, hence your book. So I think uh, the topic's fantastic. So thank you so far for sharing your thoughts about time and time poverty and being time poor and time traps. We're going to pause in our conversation with Ashley Willens and ask that you join us for our next podcast as we will continue to talk with Ashley about the relationship between time and bravery in the workplace. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week and we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on Apple, Google, CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, tune in we are everywhere our podcast today was sponsored by cabot risk strategies whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com and a reminder to check out my new book drive your career nine high impact ways to take responsibility for your own success which is available everywhere online do you have something to say yet are not saying it do you have something to do yet are not doing it now is the time to be brave at work Have a great week.